Psalm 25. And I've entitled the message, A Pattern of Prayer. You'll see that in just a minute, why we use that title. But let's, uh, let's read the psalm uh, from beginning to end, and then we'll talk about what, what it's teaching us. Psalm 25, Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look at my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. This uh, psalm is, is an acrostic, what we call an acrostic psalm. It has 22 verses, which means the 22 verses of the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse begins with one uh, letter from that alphabet, and that's not uncommon. There's a number of those acrostic psalms. It is also primarily a lament, what we call lament. But it also expresses confidence and trust in the Lord. So we're going to see that as we go throughout. It's a, it's a lament. He's feeling bad. He's feeling persecuted. Things are happening to him he's not happy with. But he's also going to demonstrate over and over again confidence and trust in God. A large portion of David's psalms are indeed prayers. And this is a prime example of them. It gives us a pattern of prayer. That's where I got the title. Uh, some consider it the second of the seven penitential psalms. Spurgeon made this observation regarding the themes of this psalm. This, listen to this carefully. I think it's really good. It is the mark of a true saint that his sorrows remind him of his sins, and his sorrow for sin drives him to God. Let me read that again. It is the mark of a true saint that his sorrows remind him of his sins, and his sorrow for sin drives him to his God. If you look for an example of how to pray, uh, you wouldn't be disappointed if you spent a lot of time reading and studying, studying the Psalms. Great examples there. As someone once said, prayer is the lifeblood of the church. And you can find a lot of prayers here in the Psalm, including David's, of course, and you can find them in other portions of Scripture. In fact, I'd recommend you do that as you read through Scripture to look for prayers. Uh, Kathy's been doing that just in her personal devotions, n not uh, noting uh, prayers as she goes through the Bible. It's a great lesson, great example for us. Prayer involves a number of things. 
It reflects upon our God, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Prayer means acknowledging God, trusting God, believing God, confessing to God, contemplating God and his works, and pleading with God. All those things. And hopefully as we go through this psalm today, many, if not all, those aspects of prayer will show up. As believers, prayer should be a vital part of our lives, not just a a side activity when we have a meal or a face with a crisis. Alistair Begg, in his book called uh, Pray Big, makes this comment in his introduction. He says, as the 19th century Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane reputedly and memorably put it, what is man, I'm sorry, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Read that again. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. In other words, that reflects who you are. It's not how often you pray, or even how long you pray, but how you pray, and what you pray for, and who you're praying to, that reflects the true character of your soul. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, and verse 14, who for a pretense make long prayer. In other words, long prayers were just kind of a show. It was a pretense. Earlier in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, he warned the disciples not to pray as the hypocritical Pharisees, for they loved to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street that they may be seen of men. So their prayer was a show to get attention. Prayer should be a private, unfettered, honest conversation with God, with the exception, of course, as as far as privacy goes, with corporate prayer, which, of course, we do here. You know, it is interesting that we don't find in any of the Gospels where Jesus' disciples ask him how to teach or how to pray. We don't find them asking that. The Lord teaches to to preach, teaches to teach. But they do ask him to teach them to pray in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And in that passage, and in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives them the example of what is known, of course, as the Lord's Prayer. He gives them an example. We'll maybe make some references to that today, but uh, we'll deal with that perhaps in another message down the road when I have an opportunity while we focus here on Psalm 25. But it's a good one to read, and we'll make some mention of it. Remember, the God who made us, the God who holds our life, our breath, and everything in this world in his sovereign, holy, just, and righteous hands has given us the privilege of communing with him in prayer. It is a privilege. Therefore, we shouldn't neglect it. We should make much use of it because we really need it. We need his help, his grace, his, his, his intervention in our life. We need to find prayer as a delight and not a burden. Now, we're going to look at a lot of references today, um, but we'll just kind of go through them quickly. Allow me to read your quote, in fact, from a book by J.C. Ryle. Uh, on, his book is called Do You Pray? Excellent little book. Let me read you what he says regarding prayer. I think there are tens of thousands of people whose prayers are nothing but a formality, an empty shell, a few words spoken with no thought as to their meaning. Some might mumble some sentences remembered from their childhood. Others may say the Lord's Prayer, but without really expecting answers to the solemn request found in it. Some people may mutter a quick prayer after they have collapsed in the bed at night or scramble over their prayers while getting ready in the morning. We may be sure that in God's sight, this is not praying. Words said without engaging the heart are as utterly useless to our souls as the incessant beating of a drum, as useless as sending a love letter written by a stranger to your loved one. Words may be said, lips may be moving, but where there is no heart, 
There is nothing that God listens to. There is no prayer. I have no doubt that Saul said many a long prayer before the Lord met him on the way to Damascus. But remember, it was not until that, was, that it was not till his heart was broken that the Lord said, he is praying. You might recall that when God spoke to Ananias there in Damascus and said, go to, to the street called Straight and you'll find Saul and he is praying. At that point, he was truly praying because at that point, Saul had been broken, had been convicted, had been brought to repentance and was crying out to his God. So it's important, as J.C. Rao points out here, that our prayers are not just formalities. They're not just we do it all the time or we say it all the time. We need it to be from the heart. A true prayer from the heart is crying out to God and acknowledging our total dependence upon him. In fact, as Bishop Royal goes on to say, he says, quote, we must remember that prayer is not a natural thing for the human mind, it is hostile to God. Even when we, by God's grace, come to repentance and faith in Christ, our flesh can still hinder our prayer life. It gets in the way, as I'm sure we all recognize. And Ryle made this very profound statement a little later in his book. He said, praying and sinning will never live together in the, in the same heart. Either prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. So sincere prayer has got to overcome and drive sin from your life because you're, you're going to God, you're looking to him for forgiveness, for cleansing, for strength. But if we're not praying sincerely, then pretty soon sin's going to choke out our prayer. That is why we need to lean on the Holy Spirit to assist us in our prayers. In other words, it's not a, a fleshly thing. It's, it's a spiritual thing. We need the Holy Spirit guiding us, directing us, empowering us. We need to spend time reading and meditating upon the Word of God to give us what you would call maybe the ammunition uh, or the, the, uh, to empower us in our prayers to be in conformity to God's will. So it's an important aspect of our lives. We can take it for granted, but we shouldn't. We need to make it a vital part of our life, recognizing how much we need it in uh, our relationship with the Lord. So let's look now at Psalm 25. And it's probably one of David's classic examples of a biblical prayer. And notice with me as we go through the repetition of words and phrases of principles here. The multiple confessions of sin, the pleas for forgiveness, the use of words like trust and fear of the Lord and others. They're not random thoughts, they're not filler, but they're there for a purpose. They express the reverence, the confidence, the assurance that God will indeed answer our prayers that are prayed in faith. So, Pray attention as we go along. If I don't happen to mention it, just maybe make a note yourself as you see these repetition of words and of thoughts. So let's start in the beginning. The beginning, beginning first three verses here of the psalm speak of dependence. They speak of trust. And there's a plea there. Okay, Dependence, trust, and a plea. Let's read the first three verses again. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. So, first of all, beloved, every time we come before God in prayer, it should be with a holy reverence. It should be with the recognition of who God is and a realization of how dependent we are upon him. Those are important principles because I think in our hectic, busy life, we sometimes get into a, either a formality or a recklessness in prayer. We're in a hurry. We want to get an answer, and we want something done you know, right away. Or we're feeling you know, maybe spiritually minded in some way, but we, we offer up a quick, maybe emotional prayer, but we don't think about who we're addressing, why we're addressing him, 
how humbly we should come before him. We also must recognize that we have no access to God, the Father, except through the name and work of Christ. As Ryle said in his book, in Jesus' name, each of us is able to draw near to God with boldness and approach him with confidence. Why? Because he has promised to hear us if we come before him in the name of his Son, obviously, in sincerity. To lift up our soul to God is the recognition that we're his. We're his people. He has called us to himself. He has bought us. We are wholly dependent upon him. That he has all the authority and the power to rule over us. Those are important principles when we come before him. We shouldn't come flippantly before the Lord or carelessly without stepping back, I guess, and recognizing who we're coming before, who he is. That should be our heart first before we utter a word. Who are we talking to? Jesus admonishes disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That verse describes for you the, the authority of God, the power of God, the sovereignty of God. He is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's who he is. That's the God, the sovereign God of all the universe. We need to come before him with the utmost of respect and humility when we come before him. And when we come before him, it must be with confidence. Confidence and with an implicit trust, and there's that word, and I'm going to repeat it multiple times here, with an implicit trust, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, everybody know that one by heart? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Trust in the Lord. That's a very important principle when you come before him in prayer. Also, he is able to, quote, able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. Ephesians 3.20, we need to come before him with that verse on our mind. He is able to do. We shouldn't come before him doubting, wondering, can you do this, Lord? We should come before him with a confidence that he is able to answer our prayers. The prophet Isaiah challenges us with these words in Isaiah 50 and verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. There's two words to remember, trust and rely, really synonymous in their meaning. We're trusting in God, we're relying upon him. We're depending upon him. We have confidence that he is a God who can answer our prayers. We trust in his power, his ability, his graciousness, his mercy, his love, and we rely upon the promises in his word. We don't doubt them. We come before him with a sense of confidence that he is our God and he can do what he promises he will do. Also in Psalm 37, verse 5, another of David's great psalms, David admonishes us to commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. These are verses that should give us a sense of boldness as well as humility coming before the Lord, but we trust in him. That was Psalm 37, 5. That word trust is really so important. I can't repeat it often enough. It's so important, my friends. We should never doubt God's ability to answer our prayer and we should trust that he knows what is best for us, right? I mean, he's a sovereign God who knows all things, works all things together for our good, for his glory. Shouldn't we trust that he'll answer it the way it needs to be answered, right? According to his will, according to what he knows is best for us. Would you rather have God answering your prayers according to his perfect, holy, merciful will or according to your wants, fears, or desires? Which would you prefer? You know, 
You want it to be your way or you want it to be God's way? Do you want him who knows all things, who knows exactly what you need, who knows all the circumstances of your life and everything surrounds you, would you want him to answer according to that or would you want him to answer according to your, your desires, your passions, your hopes, your dreams? Which would be best for you? Ultimately, in the long run, it's got to be his will. And we should believe that. We should come before him with that sense of trust and belief that he can give us what we need according to his will. And if we are trusting in him, as we look at these first three verses, if we're trusting in him, we need not be ashamed. Now, that word ashamed in this text can be used two ways. One is we don't need to be ashamed to be his servant. We don't need to be ashamed to trust in him because we know he can do what he says. On the other side of the coin, we don't need to be ashamed because our focus on him will keep us from doing things that we would be ashamed of. Okay, so two sides to it there. One is we're not ashamed because we have confidence in him and we don't care what people say to us, we trust him. The other side is we don't need to be ashamed if we're trusting in him, if we're looking to him, because that means he will, by his grace, keep us from doing things that we should be ashamed of. Okay, That's how we should trust him. Proverbs 21, 31 tells us that deliverance, and here we're looking at verse 3, uh, or actually verse, verse 2, and verse 2, letting my enemies triumph over me. Proverbs 21, 31 says, deliverance is of the Lord. If you're faced with a trial, a difficulty, uh, seems like an impossible situation, deliverance is of the Lord. He can and will deliver us from our enemies, particularly our spiritual enemy, Satan, as we trust in him. Our confidence in him can lead us not only to pray for ourselves, but as it shows here in, in verse 3, indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. We pray for others, too. We have confidence that he can meet the needs of others that we're praying for. Our confidence in him leads us not only to pray, but to trust. And that's the tough part when it says, wait upon those. The Verse 3 there, those who wait upon you will not be ashamed. That's a tough one, isn't it? Waiting is always tough. I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience. You're calling some business, looking for some information. Maybe you're making a complaint about something. They put you on hold, and that lovely voice comes on. One of our delightful, uninformed servants will be with you in a moment. And you wait five minutes. The little thing comes on again, the little recording comes on again. You wait another five minutes, and another five minutes, and your patience is starting to wear out. You're starting to get a little upset, a little annoyed, and you're saying, when are they ever going to answer me? <clears throat> well, that's frustrating for us. But when we pray and see God's face, we need to have that attitude that he knows why we're waiting. He knows what's best for us to be waiting. The Hebrews waited 400 years to get out of Egypt. Now, hopefully God wouldn't expect you to wait 400 years to answer your prayer, but still, there's a patience there, isn't there? There's a sense in which we trust God, not hurry up, God, hurry up, come on, I need an answer now. No, there's Lord, you know the timing, the answer, all the events surrounding it, what circumstances will happen if you answer this prayer at this time as opposed to this time. He knows all that detail. And we need to have that sense of trust that he's, he's in control of the situation and he will answer it according to his perfect timing in the perfect way that we can say, yes, I understand, Lord. Thank you for that mercy. So are we willing to wait not only for an answer, but for his perfect justice to be served, his perfect righteousness to be exhibited? That's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves as we begin to pray. Am I willing to wait? Am I willing to depend upon him to do what's right at the right time? Latter parts of, of verse 3 reminds us of those who deal treacherously. And what will happen to them? Ultimately, 
they will be ashamed when they stand before God in judgment. So we need not worry about them. We just need to trust that God will deal with them in due time. So let's move on now to the next couple verses, which we'll call a plea for guidance. Plea for guidance. We're in Psalm 25, and we're at verses 4 and 5. Let me read verses 4 and 5. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait. There's that word again. You I wait all the day. After our initial acknowledging of God and expressing our trust in him and pleading for protection, we now turn to him for direction, or you might call it instruction, that we, again, may not bring shame upon ourselves or upon his name. Note the three requests here in verse, these two verses and the argument he uses to support those requests. Show me, teach me, lead me. Why? For you are the God of my salvation, and I wait, which is an attitude of what? Dependent trust. When you say, I wait upon the Lord, that's an attitude of very dependent trust in him. On you I wait, and upon, upon you all the day. Okay, there's patience, isn't it? It's not a matter of just waiting for the next 15 minutes or an hour, but we wait upon the Lord all the day for an answer to prayer, if that is his desire, to have us wait. Show, teach, lead. You need to do it because you're the God of my salvation. First, we need to be shown God's way. Now, that word can be used in two different ways as well. For instance, if you as a mother are teaching your daughter to cook something, you can show them by going through and preparing the whole meal as they watch you. Or you can show them the recipe book and point it out to them and have them read it and determine for themselves how to do it. Same thing's true for working on a project of some sort. Gentlemen can teach your son by having them watch you build something or straighten something out, whatever it happens to be. Or you can point out to them what should be done and give them instructions and they do it. Okay? So in this particular context, when it says show, we want to be shown what we should do, and then we want to look at how we're going to do that, or, or we're going to look at teaching us, and then we'll look at guiding us. So, first of all, to be shown. Which way should we go? Well, in fact, let me back up. How can, we, how can we be shown, how can we know what to do unless we spend time in God's Word? Okay? The Word of God is the important guidebook that he's given to us. It is the living, inerrant word of God. If we want to know how to live, how to, do, how to progress in our spiritual life, here's what we should be dealing with, the word of God. We must approach our Bibles not as some historic document or religious treaty, but as the living, inerrant word of the living God. Well, you say, of course, we're here in church. We believe that. We're all professing believers that this is what we would normally do. But do we? Do we always Treat this book and its contents with the awe and respect it deserves as a recorded word of God, the sovereign God and creator of all the universe. Because if we don't value his word as we should, then our prayer life will certainly be weak and ineffective, won't it? If we're immersed in his word, it will enliven our prayers. And as we claim the promises of God, that the word, let alone, increases our faith and trust in him to answer our questions. Okay? That's important that we value the word, we value the promises in the word, we believe the promises in the word. Therefore, when we come before him in prayer, we'll have this word upon our heart. It will guide our prayers. So we need, first of all, to be shown what we need to pray for, and that's here in the word of God. So studying the word, memorizing the word, hiding in your heart, that will enable your prayers. 
Which way should we go? How should we live? Well, read the Word of God, and it will show you. Then we need to look for the Lord to teach us. It's one thing to be shown something, but we need him to teach us, to tell us how to apply the wisdom given here in the Word, into the precepts of our life, our daily lives. Now, primarily, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, of course, right? As we read, as we study, we ask the Holy Spirit to make it, make it understandable to us, to teach us. But the Lord, in his mercy, has given us preachers and teachers in the church to help us as well, to instruct us in the principles of a godly life in obedience to God's will. So that's something we can praise God for, that he's given us teachers. He hasn't left it all, us all to figure it out by ourselves, but he's given us his Holy Spirit, and he's also given us teachers here on earth that help us to understand what we should do and how we should come before him in prayer even. If we're accurately going to fulfill his word, then we need him to thirdly lead us and guide us like a shepherd in those straight and narrow paths by the stirring of our spirit within us to obedience. You know, you may know something, you may even understand it, but sometimes we what? We need courage, don't we, to press on in the right path without wavering. We can have a lot of knowledge, we can have a lot of understanding, but if we don't do with what we know, with what we understand, what good does it do us? It's just a lot of head knowledge. So we need to be shown or led in that, I'm sorry, guided in that way, like a shepherd guiding a sheep. John 16 verse 13 tells us, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Okay, we need a guide. The latter part of verse 5 in our text expresses once again our dependence and our trust in God, for he is the God of our salvation. That's something we need to repeatedly remind ourselves of as we pray. He is the God of our salvation, which would cause us hopefully to come before him with the proper reverence as well as a proper trust. And we can constantly and we can confidently wait upon him and rely upon him who redeemed us to direct our paths in accordance with his holy will. So those two verses are important, and I would recommend you even go over that and pray it as David prays here, show me, Lord, teach me, guide me in your truth. For you are the God of my salvation. That right there is a great brief prayer. Uh, even as you're perhaps in a busy day and you don't have time to, to pray of great length, but keep those three verses in mind. And that's a great way to start out to pray. Lord, show me, teach me, guide me, that I might live a life that's pleasing to you. Okay, let's move on now to the next three or four verses, verses 8 through 11, in which we find a lesson of humility and confession in our prayer. Two important principles, humility and confession. Let's read verses 8 through 11. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. I think King James uses the word meek there, but same principle. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. David continues his focus here on the goodness of God, which is a very important thing for us to do. And as he does, he meditates on God's gracious care for those who humbly or meekly submit to his will. There's an important part of prayer, isn't it? It's one thing to come before God in prayer, But if we're not willing to submit in meekness and humility to his answers, then we've got a problem. That means we're not really trusting him, are we? We need to humbly and meekly submit to what he wants us to do. It's a good idea to pause, actually, in the midst of our prayers to contemplate not only only on God and his mercies, 
but everything about him, all his wondrous works, particularly his plan of redemption, because in doing so, we can be inspired afresh to worship him more fervently and trust him more thoroughly. That's important as because sometimes you get into a prayer and you kind of forget which way you're going or your mind gets distracted. So it's important to focus on, pause, focus on who you're praying to, consider what his mercy and grace has done to you in the past, has done for you in the past, and can then continue on in prayer from there. In Psalm 1, we're told that the man is blessed whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Such a practice both feeds and forms our prayers. As we meditate upon his law, as we delight in that law, it will help us in our prayers to bring forth his promises and claim those promises as we come before him. If you would have God answer your prayers, then it would be wise to delight in his word and meditate upon that word. That will help strengthen your prayers. Psalm 4, verses 3 through 5, also reinforces the same principle. It says, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly, and the Lord will hear when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. You know, that would probably be a good study. <clears throat> Look up in uh, your, your Bibles how many times the word trust is used in relationship to God. How many times you know, that, verse, that word is used, trust. Or even the word rely as well, which I said is kind of a synonymous term. Hasty, reckless, self-centered prayers uh, will get you nowhere, beloved. But deliberate, humble, selfless prayers offered from a humble heart, the product of meditation upon God and his word, will be heard and answered as we put our trust in him. Those who follow the path of the world or their own self-righteous desires will find the going rough. But those who keep God's covenant and his testimonies, as these verses teach us, will taste of his mercy and know his truth. Spurgeon made this comment on verse 10. He said, this is a rule without exception. God is good to those that be good. Mercy and faithfulness shall abound towards those who through mercy are made faithful. Whatever outward appearances may threaten, we should settle it steadfastly in our minds that while grace enables us to obey the Lord's will, we need not fear that providence will cause us any loss. There shall be mercy in every unsavory morsel and faithfulness in every bitter drop. That last phrase by Spurgeon, he has a way with words. Let me read that again. Think about this in your prayer life. There shall be mercy in every unsavory morsel and faithfulness in every bitter drop. As we're going through trials, difficulties, hardships, God's in control. We need to have that confidence. He is behind all things, and he will provide mercy for every little trial you're going through, and he will be faithful and give you faithfulness in every bitter drop that you face. Though our prayers may not always result in the relief of our trials, God's grace and mercy will sustain us and see us through to the end. <clears throat> Verse 11 would seem to be a little out of place when you're reading the psalm. All of a sudden, he, comes, he stops and he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. It's one of three requests for forgiveness in this psalm. And that's what I think I mentioned at the beginning. These are the kind of things you need to look for as we're going through a text of Scripture, a psalm like this, is the repeated themes. And it's interesting that even though he's praying, and initially he seems to be rejoicing in the God of his salvation, yet he periodically stops and recognizes that he is a sinner. 
And we are only sinners saved by grace, aren't we? Therefore, we shouldn't expect that our prayers are automatically answered because we said something. No, we need to be sure we're praying in humility and obedience to God's word. <clears throat> the more we are aware of his holy majesty, the more we meditate upon his testimonies, we're reminded of how unworthy we are and how sinful we are. And sometimes, as we go to God in prayer, we are anxious concerning some issue, but we're hiding unconfessed sin. Not always, but sometimes that happens. And once we come before God, He, via His Spirit, will reveal our hidden sin and will not answer our prayer until we acknowledge it, confess it, and repent of it. David recognized this in Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13, when he said, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and shall be innocent of great transgression. And that's in the, in the middle of that psalm. We need to come before God as we're worshiping him, as we're praying to him, and we need to pause and make sure that we're not hiding some transgression within our heart. We're not trying to avoid bringing up that subject because we know we've, we've gone astray. No, we need to be open, completely open, and we need to pray that God would reveal to us any secret sins, even hidden faults that we need to repent of, that we might have a closer relationship with him. That's the goal. Though we are now justified by faith in Christ, we are far from perfectly righteous as we progress in our sanctification. Thus, as Calvin said regarding this text, in order that God may reckon us of the number of his servants, we ought always to come to him, entreating him, after the example of David, in his fatherly loving kindness, to bear with our infirmities, because without the free remission of our sins, we have no reason to expect any reward of our works. So we need to come before him recognizing that he is our loving Heavenly Father and that he bears with us even when we go astray. But we need to also recognize that he has offered us a free remission of sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to have that confidence and come before him in humility and have a sense of submission to him, knowing that he will forgive. And note that David asked the Lord to pardon him in this text here in verse 11, not because he deserves it, but, very important, your, for your namesake, O Lord, for your namesake, God forgives us for the glory of his name. And for that, we should be eternally grateful. The desire is to glorify his name by forgiving us of our sins. <clears throat> Let's move on now to the next few verses, verses 12 through 15. And in this particular section, again, he goes from a, a recognition of unworthiness, a confession of sin. He goes to a contemplation, a contemplation on God's goodness. So let's read verses 12 through 15. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. As we mentioned before, it's often profitable in the midst of prayer to pause and contemplate the goodness of God. That's what David's doing here. We're contemplating on his provision for us and our responsibility to obey him. These verses reflect that practice here. In fact, Calvin made this very point in his commentary on these verses. He's, and this is interesting the way he worded it. Nothing more readily occurs than a relaxation in earnest and attentive prayer unless it be sustained by the recollection, recollection of God's promises. In other words, as we're praying, if we forget about God's promises, if we kind of get caught up in our own self 
uh, thoughts here, and we begin to kind of relax in our prayer. We, we don't consider the urgency of our prayer. We don't consider the importance of our prayer before God. Well, then we began to kind of you know, fade away, you might say. We have no reason to expect a reward in that case, an answer prayer. We need to be focused on God. We need to maintain that focus. And note, David asks here the Lord to pardon, not because he deserves it, again, because it's for his namesake. That's important. We remember that as we go through this prayer. So we may earnestly pray, but as time goes on, as we all, I'm sure, are aware of, we become weary, our mind wanders in many directions, and then it must be, like David here, to set our minds on things above, upon the promises of God, upon our responsibilities, walking both in the fear of the Lord and in the way of the Lord. Note the repetitive use of the word fear here in this part of the psalm. If we are a man or a woman that fears the Lord, verse 12, then God will teach us the way to go. If we fear the Lord, verse 14, then God's secret or counsel will be with us, and he will guide us in the right path. In the latter part of verse 14, it says, he will show them his covenant. What does that mean? He will show them his covenant. Well, Spurgeon explains it this way. He says, it's, regarding the covenant, he says, its antiquity, its security, its righteousness, its fullness, its graciousness, its excellence shall be revealed to their hearts and understandings, and above all, their own part in it shall be sealed to their souls by the witness of the Holy Spirit. God will show them his covenant, show us his covenant, his covenant of grace. He'll remind us of it by the Holy Spirit. He will encourage us in that truth that we are part of that covenant. He has chosen us in Christ before the world began. And as if David recognized how dependent he was upon the grace of God and his protection, he closes this section with verse 15 by professing his need to always look to the Lord for a protection. Read verse 15 again. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, not occasionally, not most of the time, but we are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. He always looks to the Lord for protection, and we should as well. David expresses similar thoughts in Psalm 123 and verses 1 and 2 when he says, Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of the servant look to the hands of their masters, the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. You might also want to see Psalm 141 and verses 8 through 10, which has similar thoughts by David. You know, it's imperative when we pray that we keep our thoughts fixed upon God with confidence in his mercy and his protection of his people. Confidence. He's a God of mercy. He is a God who promised to protect us, and we are his people. It's again, it's a reminder, once again, which we should see over and over in the scripture, that we're always dependent upon him. We, in our very independent world society that we have, and especially here in the United States, think so much of our own independence. But we, as God's people, wherever we live, need to recognize over and over again on a daily basis that we are totally dependent upon him. Totally. So let's move on to the next few verses as we get towards the end of the psalm here in verses 16 through 22. And as we do that, we'll see in these next few verses a lament, a plea, and a trust. A lament, a plea, and a trust. Let's read verses 16 through 22. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. 
Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. <clears throat> in these last verses, we find really the core of David's lament. As Calvin points out, the repetition of his complaints in these verses show that the difficulties with which he, quote, with which he was assailed were not slight or trivial trials. In other words, he wasn't just, hey, I got a, I got a hangnail, you know. No, he's, he's going through serious trials, serious persecution. And it shows, though, that in spite of his trust in God and his contemplation on God's blessings on those who fear him, he still, in real time, is suffering afflictions, which have deeply troubled him. And perhaps we can associate with this scenario with events in our lives. You know, we may start uh, out coming before the Lord in prayer due to some trial, be it a physical affliction or just different things that happened in our life. But we begin, as David, with an acknowledgement of God as our Lord, our God. We express our genuine trust in him. And we ask for strength. We ask for direction. We ask for instruction. We take time to contemplate his mercies and care for us. But as we go through prayer, we kind of come back around to our original request for prayer, which was for our trial or our affliction. We're, we become burdened with that. And perhaps our pain has become intense, and we, we don't really see any relief in sight. Or our trials, is, as we plead for them, is, is just doesn't seem to be giving a quick answer. Note how David first asked God to turn to him and have mercy. Then he describes the intensity of his troubles and asks God to bring him out of them. And once again, pleads for forgiveness of his sins, perhaps thinking that that's the reason why God isn't answering them right away or that he's brought these afflictions into his life. And though not always the case, we do need to use our time in prayer, as I mentioned earlier, to examine ourselves, honestly confess our sins that we have overlooked or have hidden deep in our hearts. And we are assured, as David tells us in Psalm 31.7, that God does hear, he says, quote, I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. <clears throat> Our troubles may be severe, they may be painful, but God is not ignorant of them. In fact, he probably has ordained them. Indeed, he has, because nothing is outside of his purview. But we need to have that confidence that he is aware, and as we pray and show humility and trust in him, that he will consider them. He will hear our prayer in due time. He will answer it. <clears throat> we need to remember that when we feel overwhelmed, that God is never, out, out, never in that condition. God is never overwhelmed. He is never unable to handle a situation. He's perfectly in control of every aspect of our lives, the world, and even the universe. What is too much for us to handle is of no consequence for him to take care of. He can deal with it. Note, David repeats his thoughts here in verses 20 and 21 that he had in verses 1 and 5, he trusts God and he waits upon him. Again, those two principles, he trusts God and he waits upon him. Beloved, these words and the principles they represent should be the very basis of our every prayer. You come before God trusting in him and you are willing to trust him enough to wait upon him, not to rush his answer. Yet, yet, if we truly believe in and trust in and have confidence in our sovereign God, who works all things after the counsel of his will, his perfect will, then we can, by faith, wait on his timing and what? Be content. Ah, there's a tough word, isn't it? Not only waiting is tough when God's you know, not answering immediately, but being content in the circumstances we find ourselves, knowing that he's fully aware of it, 
And he can sustain us through that. He can give us grace to endure that. That contentment is a tough one sometimes, just as waiting is tough, isn't it? In Psalm 32, uh, verse 60, or 10, I'm sorry, Psalm 32, 10, David expresses things quite well when he says, He who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. That's Psalm 32, 10. Mercy shall surround him. And also, in Psalm 56, in verse 3, David declares, when I, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Lest we think that we just have to trust God and then live as we want, David asks in verse 21 here of our text, for God to let integrity and uprightness preserve me. So we don't throw things into God's hand and then walk off and do whatever we wish. No, we ask God to help us to walk in integrity, in honesty, in righteousness. If we're servants of God, then we should live like it by pursuing honesty, holiness, and righteousness while we wait upon him and we trust in him. Interestingly, David closes this psalm with a plea for God not only to deliver him, but to redeem or deliver all of his people from all of their troubles. While it's certainly fine to pray for ourselves and to be honest before God concerning our own affairs, we should always consider those around us, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. They should be even perhaps more prominently on our mind and think about them before we think of ourselves. But in either case, we should always include them in our prayer, not be so self-centered that we forget the trials and difficulties and the needs of those around us. So <clears throat> there's no biblically mandated uh, pattern of prayer. But I hope the study of this psalm will help you to develop a pattern. In fact, I'd recommend you read through it again and look at all the different parts. A pattern of your own that includes things like acknowledging, worshiping God, trust, contemplation, confidence, and a patient waiting upon the Lord. From Psalms like Psalm 25 and the Lord's Prayer, uh, read those over and over and use them as inspiration for your prayers. Maybe at some time in the future we'll go through a study on the Lord's Prayer. In fact, uh, we hopefully will look at also some questions regarding that as we find in our uh, confession, in the uh, Catechism. Okay? Praise God for his promises and his truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.